This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Hi, I'm, uh, I'm Steve. I'm one of the elders of a church. We're currently uh, doing a series called Everyday Church, which is primarily coming from this book, which is by a couple of um, UK uh, church leaders named, uh, named Steve Timmis and Tim Chester. Um, Tim came and preached uh, with us at some point last year. Um, and if you've not read that book, um, that's kind of okay, because we're doing that series at the moment, so you find out what's in each chapter as we go along. Um, but I would really encourage it. It's basically uh, talking about the state of a church in the UK at the moment and the challenges that are facing it. Um, and also how, how the church can be relevant. And whether you know Jesus or not, um, it's actually just a really liberating read. And um, knowing that I was going to be preaching on this series, uh, I ran out and bought the book at the start of a series. Um, the last few weeks we've done everyday um, mission, everyday community and everyday discipleship. And I flicked through the contents page and found that there's actually no chapter on what we're doing today, which is everyday compassion. Um, so in some ways that I get to kind of like go on the fly um, how we do this, but it's, uh, it does mean at least I'm not going to be copying any material um, from those guys. My material is, is definitely stolen from other people, but I will reference that throughout. It's that honesty thing again that I'm really building up um, this morning. Um, and it's interesting actually that compassion isn't um, in this as one of the everyday things that makes up the church, because I think what we're going to find as we talk through this stuff is that this is something of utmost importance. Whether you, whether you already know Jesus or whether you don't, this is something that is so important to God and so important to being an everyday church as well. So what do we mean by compassion? Um, Good old Google dictionary definition says, compassion is a sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings or misfortune of others. Compassion can mean different things. Uh, The word compassion or variants of it uh, are used in the Bible nearly a hundred times. We hear that uh, God has compassion for his people Israel in the Old Testament. We hear in the New Testament that God has compassion for the people of a church. We hear that Jesus heals people. He looks upon people and has compassion for them um, and heals them. So having a God whose compassion knows no end, it makes sense that his church must be compassionate towards each other, towards those who don't know him. But today we're primarily going to talk about loving the poor. And um, I'm, really, I'm really excited about talking about this. I talk quite fast already, so if I talk faster, um, it's because I'm excited. Because this is a message that's been living inside me for certainly the last six months. So I'm very excited about it. Um, it's, it's worth saying that compassion is not just for the poor. Uh, and again, I think we'll find as we, as we look into this, you can't really just have compassion for one people group. That's not really how it works. And, and some of the principles that we'll learn about compassion, you'll find are really applicable to loving other people as well. But we are primarily going to talk about loving the poor. And the, the reason we're going to do that is because this is part of a journey we're on as a church, God First Cheltenham. If you don't know us again, or if you've just joined us, if you're just visiting us, we we kind of felt for a period of maybe a year, 18 months, that God has been speaking to us about how important it is that we love the poor uh, and the role of the church in doing that. And um, there were a a series of guest preachers who said stuff which kind of touched on it. We did a couple of preachers about it. We had some prayer evenings and just really felt the weight of this challenge. And off the back of that, we've kind of made that one of our vision goals. We'll we'll touch on that a bit later. But this is the journey we're on. This is the journey we're on, working out um, what it means to love the poor and how important that is to have compassion. 
And I have previously talked on this topic before. This was when I, feel, I, I first felt the Lord speaking to me about it about a year ago. Um, so there's going to be some covered territory in a sense in that, but there's also a lot of new material. I really feel that God is speaking stuff to me. And um, the first time I preached it, I felt really convicted about it. I felt like it was a real challenge to love the poor and, and to certainly to preach that because I feel like it wasn't something that was massively happening in my life. So I felt challenged by it. And reflecting on why I'm speaking on this for a second time, I didn't really ask this question, but I did reflect, well, is it because God has called me apart? Has he called apart Steve Moat, saying, Steve Moat, out of all the people of God First Cheltenham, is this guy who has got these special set of skills, this special heart for loving the poor. He's someone who I want to have this particular ministry. And um, if I had asked myself that question literally, it would have been a resounding no, because I just don't feel like I have the special skills for this. I don't feel like I'm someone who particularly you can point to and say, this guy is so about the poor, he's always been about the poor, it's a passion of his, whether he's a part of a church or not, he's got the skills that do it. And because I'm convinced that I'm not special, it really makes me believe that this message is for us as a church. I just feel like I'm a normal person in the church, and I just feel like God has been speaking to me about this. And what I've been praying for the last few months, uh, well, a few weeks or so, probably about a month, is that this is a message that really resonates with us as a church, as I tell you what I feel like God's been speaking to me and to us about this. And I want to start by saying that before I think God started speaking to me about this about a year ago, I think I probably despised the poor. I think I despise the poor. Now, not in like an obvious way of, you know, that Steve is always like creeping around, hating on the poor. He's trying to bring them down. He's tripping them up. If he finds out you're poor, he doesn't want to know you. Proverbs 14 verse 20 says, the poor are hated even by their neighbor. He who despises his neighbor sins. So how can I say this? How is it that I've realized that I was unconsciously despising the poor in terms of what the Bible says about the poor? Well, let me start by saying what I think I might have hated. What is being poor? What is poverty? Poverty means having nothing that the world values and nothing that the world can deal with. Tim Keller did a a preach maybe um, something like 20 years ago, which was heavily impacted by a sermon from 200 years ago by by a guy called Jonathan Edwards, and I lean a bit on these guys at the beginning. And Tim Keller makes this distinction of being poor means having nothing that the world values. He says, if you have money, the world values that, so it will deal with you. If you have skills, the world values that, so it will deal with you. If you own property, that's something the world values. It will deal with you. If you're born into influence, if you're born into a wealthy family, the world values that, it will deal with you. But if you have none of that stuff, you are poor. If there's an 18-year-old, let's say, a 20-year-old, whatever, who's, who's grown up on a state and had nothing poured into him, uh, really bad school, it didn't really matter if he committed truancy, um, he's, he lives in a really run-down community and he gets to like 18, 20 and he can barely read and he's got awkward social skills uh, and he's got bad education. He has nothing that the world values. He is poor. And I found that definition really helpful, but I think the question that I found that I needed to ask that unlocked this realisation of, oh, my heart has not been in the right place about the poor is why are they poor? And here's why I think I might have despised them in the past. It's not their fault. It is not the poor's fault that they are, fault, uh, they are poor. Now, there's a caveat, which is sometimes it is the fault of people that they become poor. Like The Bible does talk about making reckless decisions. It talks about making sinful decisions, which means you sometimes have something, you throw it away, and you become poor. But, and I'm really sticking uh, with Tim Keller here. There are something like 200 verses in the Bible. Um, I've read them. It's, it's worth reading. Uh, on, on the poor. And barely any of them talk about the poor being people who had stuff and who threw it away through reckless behavior. And it might be worth asking yourself that question. Do you believe that? Do you believe that it is the fault of the poor that they are poor? 
Because I think I did. I think there was this element of me that when I looked at people, and I just quickly want to make this distinction, what I'm not talking about here is watching a TV advert for you know, a money raiser in Africa and talking about an African village and saying, well, you've made bad decisions. I'm talking about my experience, everyday church for me in the UK. So if I see that 18-year-old kid who I just made up, who, who, can't, um, you know, who can barely read and who's got really bad social skills, part of me is thinking, why have you made bad decisions? Why didn't you, why didn't you try hard? at school? Why didn't you think about social skills? Why didn't you think about your future? Why didn't you think, have we got enough money before we have another kid? I needed to hear it's not their fault. And if we read the Bible, I think we'll find that the Bible says that it is not their fault that is the root of poverty. The Bible talks more about poverty as something that happens to the poor and the crushing impact of it and how we should respond to that. So why does it happen? A couple of things I want to bring out that the Bible says. One, poverty is circumstantial. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city, but poverty is the ruin of the poor, it says in Proverbs. The Bible talks about as if there will always be the rich and there will always be the poor. Jesus says that. He says you will always have the poor with you. But those examples you get of when you get massive amounts of wealth, which is juxtaposed with massive amounts of poverty on the other side, Those things will always exist. Jesus has told us that's going to be true. So it's worth bearing in mind, if there's always going to be wealth and there's always going to be poverty, some people are just going to be born in one direction or another. You're going to be born into wealth. You're going to be born into poverty. And and thinking about how we're born into it is probably one of the most powerful ways of really thinking about it. When when Joe and I I first started dating, my wife Jo is is Polish. She lived in Poland at the time. It was very complicated. Um, And uh, I remember the first few times I went over... um, getting this feeling from her and her friends that there was almost this exotic feeling about me because I was from another country and from England. Now, over time, you'll find out that there is nothing exotic about Steve Moat. Um, and, and Poland isn't particularly a poor country anymore. If you go there now, it's a really first world experience. Um, but it, it, is, it is further behind from England, and certainly at that point, it was only 20 years or something since it had come out of communism, um, and the impact of that was still kind of apparent. And, I, and I, remember, I remember recognizing that people thought, this is really cool, oh my goodness, she's got an English boyfriend, he's cool because he's English. And there was this element of it's because England is seen as this land of opportunity, this land of wealth, um, it's exciting and stuff like that. And even at the time, I remember thinking, it's really unjust that they should feel like I'm cool just because I'm from a place that has opportunities. It's not like I earned that over them. And maybe, to be honest, I should have taken the opportunity to be exotic because, as I said, there's been scant opportunity for that since. But that's how I felt. And, and that's what it's like. It's like you can be born into it. It's circumstantial. And just in that same way, you can be born into poverty. And it's not just about material possessions. Jonathan Edwards is a, was an um, 18th century American preacher who um, did a very famous preach on Christian duty towards the poor. It's really worth looking at. It's uh, written down on the internet. And at the end of this preach, he deals with a number of, um, I think, made-up questions uh, from Christians about why you wouldn't look after the poor or why we wouldn't care for the poor. And um, one of them uh, is, well, listen, I don't want to give to that guy, that poor guy, because uh, it's his fault he's poor, because he's incapable of making good decisions. And Jonathan Edwards said to that guy, that is his calamity. That is the poverty that that guy was born into. Such a faculty, the ability to make good decisions, is a gift God bestows on some and not on others. Thank God you have the gift and show your thankfulness by sharing the benefit with them. The Bible says it's not so much that people make bad decisions and therefore become poor, it's more that people are poor and therefore make bad decisions. And it recognises this, it recognises the human nature of it. In Proverbs 31, it says, Let them drink and forget their poverty. 
what the Bible isn't doing is condoning getting drunk in any situation, but it's recognising human nature. You must have been in that same situation which I've been in before, which is sometimes when you see a homeless person on the street and you feel like, I definitely don't have time to go and get them a sandwich or something, I'm like, I'm not sure if I want to give them change because I'm worried they might spend it on alcohol. The Bible recognises that. Yeah, they probably will, or they might do. They might want to drink. I, I would probably want to do that. If I had nothing, I can understand that feeling of wanting to numb it. That's not the right way to go about it, but the Bible recognises that that is the human nature of it. Ecclesiastes 6 verse 8 says, what do the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? If we take us back to this imaginary 18-year-old guy who can't, who can't read and has got poor social skills, why would he not? I might look at him and think, why can't you conduct yourself? But actually, if he's had no input into him, he's had a really bad school life, he's been hungry because uh, his family's not got enough food and stuff, why, why would he bother? Where's his motivation coming from for him to better himself in the way that I would understand it, bettering myself? The poor have less to lose. I walked through town a couple of weeks ago and um, uh, one of the big issue sellers was being arrested and I have absolutely no idea what the situation was and I, I still don't know now. And I think if, about a year ago if I'd walked past him I probably wouldn't have thought anything of it. But walking past it this time I just felt so sad because I thought why would he not do something that gets himself arrested? He has so little to lose. Like liberty was one of those things he has to lose and he's just lost it. But he has so little. If I got arrested... That would, be, that would feel like a big deal. I'm like, oh my goodness, I've got so much to lose. I'm like, I've got a career, I've got a wife and a kid and another kid on the way, I've got a house. That's a big deal. This guy's got nothing to lose. Probably making that decision about whether you should go ahead and do something that gets you arrested is an easier thing to go across than it is for me. So circumstances. Exploitation is the other one that the Bible really brings out is the root of, of poverty. Proverbs 13 says, an unplowed field produces food for the poor, but injustice sweeps it away. Even what they have is taken from them. And it's not just the obvious kind of exploitation. We can all get behind the idea that God hates, you know, the pantomime villain, the small cadre of African leaders who rule over a country with, you know, in, in, uh, in, with despotism and, and they're taking all the aid whilst the people are, uh, are in starvation beneath them. But exploitation is more subtle than that as well, and particularly when we try and make it relevant to us. Think again about this 18-year-old guy who should have given a name. It would have made it easier to reference. Um, imagine he was, uh, if, if he was born into the UK, you might say, well, listen, when you were born into the UK, in the UK at least you probably will have clothing, you probably will have access to education, whether it's good or not. You will have running water. Um, you might have been born healthy. Um, those might be the things that he had to begin with. But actually, if he was born into you know, a third-generation poor family which are really broken, he's never known any love, the education he receives is really bad, he's got no motivation to do anything, then he might well lose that stuff quickly, and you can kind of understand why. And if you think about it, if you think about people who are in that situation of poverty, think how extremely lucky you would have to be to get out of that situation. You'd have to work against the flow, you'd have to work extremely hard, and on top of that, you'd have to get really lucky. Whereas when I think about my situation when I was born into a middle-class family, loving, loads of support, finances, got a house, I would have had to be extremely unlucky to fall out of that situation. And yet what I found was that I was judging them by the same standards as myself. I found that when I was meeting that guy, I was like, kid, like when I was 18, like I was this, I was that, why aren't you doing it? Do you think we're going to be judged by the same standards as people who are poor? The system is broken, right? It's subtle. It's really subtle that this happens in terms of exploitation. Proverbs 19. Wealth attracts many friends, but even the closest friend of the poor person deserts them. Tim Keller, this is maybe my penultimate Tim Kellerism. Um, he gives this example of if you're rich and you own a store in a rich area, let's say you live in a rich area as well, 
then you're taking money out of that area because your store, pe people who live in that area are putting money into that shop, so you're taking money from the area. But chances are you're spending your lunch breaks there, you're spending your days off because it's a nice area to live, so you're also putting money back into that area as well. That's not what happens in poor areas. In poor areas, the people who own the shops probably don't live there as well, so they're taking money from that area, but they're not putting anything back in. The schools are bad, but people who have money, people who are middle class, don't want their kids to go to those schools and they don't want to live in those areas as well. So nothing is going into those areas. Those areas are constantly being taken out of because people still live there and they get worse and worse. It's subtle. We're a part of that exploitation. That's subtle. That's how I'm a part of that exploitation. I don't want to shop particularly on Coronation Square in Hester's Way. This, was, this is how I felt about it. I don't particularly want to live on Hester's Way because I think it's a worse area than some other areas. And in fact, Joe and I found out that we do live in Hester's Way Ward, but it's, it's the nice corner of it, and estate agents refer to it as Ben Hall because they know they won't shift it if it's Hester's Way. It's subtle. See, I did used to think it was their fault. I didn't realise I thought that, but I did. And um, one, of, one of the books I read that has uh, really challenged me is um, by a guy called Ronald Sider. It's called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, which is my kind of title. I'm not actually going to use that quote, so feel free to read it or whatever. Um, it's very challenging, again, as you can imagine. And um, he, he talks about this one stage, something that really, um, really I found quite liberating. He talks about this, uh, uh, the 18th century uh, Scottish economist who was called Adam Smith. And Adam Smith came up with the economic theory um, of laissez-faire. And laissez-faire is basically the idea that the best thing for a nation is if its economy is growing... The best way for an economy to grow within a nation is if the government doesn't really regulate it and just lets people try and do everything they can to get as much wealth as they can. And there's almost this kind of like civic duty on people that what you should be doing for the economy, because the economy growth is the best thing, is trying to get as much wealth as you can. If there are any problems in the economy, it will sort itself out. And it's almost like this invisible hand will make sure that no one within that um, has anything bad happen to them. And the point that Ronald Sider kind of made about this is that this is an economic theory that came up like 200 years ago, but I believe it. I just believe that is the truth. When I'm looking at someone who's poor and who's not got enough to, to care for themselves, I'm like, well, that's just irresponsible because we're all meant to make enough wealth for ourselves. Like, now the state's going to have to cover you. Am I going to have to cover you? Because I've been meant to getting wealth for myself and I'm meant to get more of it. And I found that really eye-opening. But I think I've been believing a lie. We need to realise that poverty isn't the just desserts someone gets for making a bad decision. If I make a bad decision, what could I lose? I could lose my job, but I'm pretty well educated, so there's a chance I'll get another one. I could lose my house, but I've got a loving family, who's got some, I've got some money in the bank, that I, I don't think I'll be sleeping, sleep, uh, uh, sleeping homeless on the streets. We need to recognise that poverty is due not to individual depravity or inefficiency, but to social maladjustment. So what should we do about it? Compassion. Compassion leads to action. What does God say about the poor? He loves them. This, I cut back on this section massively. We could sit in this all day long. We're told frequently that God is for the poor. In no stronger way than Jesus coming to bring freedom for those in captivity. But the one way we can see this is how God calls us to respond to the poor. Jesus came and uh, he, he spoke so much about the poor and he made his whole life about the poor and he commanded us um, to love the poor and he did the ultimate act of compassion by recognising that our suffering was that we were headed towards hell and a life without the Father and he died for us so that we wouldn't need to do that. A couple of verses just to stir you. Honestly, there's so much in here. <clears throat> Jeremiah 22, 15, 16 is talking about King Josiah who's one of my favourite kings in the Old Testament. I really don't have time though. 
uh, to go into it. Uh, this is the description of Josiah. He defended the cause of the poor and the needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me? That's God speaking. Is that not what it means to know God? Be someone who defends the cause of the poor and the needy. Matthew 25. Jesus is talking about end times. I couldn't think of anything more important than the end times. Jesus is literally speaking about judgment day when the righteous will be put on one side and will go to heaven, those who've accepted Jesus in their lives, and those who haven't, the unrighteous, we're told, will go away to eternal punishment. And um, Jesus says to the righteous, you are blessed by my Father, come and take your inheritance, which is eternal life with him in paradise. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat, I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink, I was a stranger and you invited me in, I needed clothes and you clothed me, I was ill and you looked after me, I was in prison and you came to visit me. And the righteous say, Jesus, man, I never saw you, when did I ever see you hungry? And he says, I tell you the truth, what you did for the least of these brothers and sisters, your neighbours, you did for me. And he then says to the unrighteous, you saw me hungry and you left me hungry. You saw me thirsty and you left me thirsty. And they said, Jesus, I never even saw. When did I see you hungry? When did I see you thirsty? And he says the same thing to you. He says, I tell you the truth, the the least you did for one of these brothers and sisters, you did for me. Do you think we're going to get a chance in heaven to feed a hungry Jesus? This is our chance to do that. And he tells us to do it. Ronald Sider, the rich Christian's uh, book guy, says, what does, this, what does this Matthew 25, this bit about Judgment Day and how important it is, what does that mean in a world where millions die each year while rich Christians live in affluence? What does it mean to see the Lord of the universe lying by the roadside starving and walk on by the other side? We cannot know. We can only pledge in fear and trembling not to kill him again. It's in there so much. It's a little bit, honestly, if you do, I'd love to spend more time in this. If you don't believe me, chat to me afterwards or go away and read your Bibles and tell me that the number of times we're commanded to care for the poor is not crazy. It's a little bit like when you're thinking about buying a car, like a certain model of car, and because you're thinking about it, you suddenly feel like you see that model all of the time on the road. It is throughout. It is in there so much that Jonathan Edwards, this 18th century preacher, said, it is the absolute and indispensable duty of the people of God to give bountifully and willingly for supplying the wants of the needy. Where have we any command in the Bible laid down in stronger terms than the command of giving to the poor? You know, whether you hear that and believe that straight away or not, consider that someone says it might well be the strongest command that's laid down in the Bible and the most regular one in there. So why wasn't I doing it? Why did I find out, to my shock and horror, because I didn't intentionally do this, that I might have been hating the poor? Why did it come as a shock to me to find someone suggesting that it's the clearest command in the Bible? I've read the Bible through numerous times. Did I just miss it? Three lies that I think I was believing that I really hope is me speaking into something that other people will get. It might be that you're way ahead of me on this, in which case, praise the Lord, let's go through this together. But these are three things that really have opened my eyes. One, I believed it was a choice for me to get involved. Tim Keller thinks, this is definitely my last Tim Kellerism, thinks, uh, he calls it, um, well, I, I call it committee syndrome. We've basically made the idea of serving the poor um, an option as a Christian. It's kind of like a committee within the church. It's a small group within the church. It's a program within the church. It's something that you can choose to get involved in. Joe and I, in our, in our last church, which was in Brackland, it's a really big church called Kerith, a really good church. They had a thriving social action ministry and uh, Joe and I, like serving and loving the poor, and Joe and I, we ran a small group, and we went to them and said, hey, is there any way that we can help you guys? And they were like, yeah, that's brilliant, you can do this, and you can do that, and we did it, and it really was great. But I think that probably, I felt like I was going above and beyond the call of duty. I thought, I mean, social action's already happening in the church, this is being done by the church, but this is pretty good, I'm doing it as well. It's not a choice. It's not something he says is for one and not for other. 
If God cares that much for the poor, what will you say to him when you stand before him? What are you going to say? I thought my church was doing it. What happens if we're not doing it as a church? That's part of the journey we're on at the moment. What are we going to say if we're not doing it? John Piper, in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, again, my kind of title, uh, he gives this, it's not specifically about loving for the poor, but it's very relevant. I will tell you what a tragedy is, he says. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider this story from the February 1998 Reader's Digest. A couple took early retirement from their jobs in Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball and collect shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells. This is a tragedy. We can only spend ourselves once. Isaiah says that. Isaiah says, it's, he, you know, I'm not making this up. Go away and read the Bible. Isaiah says, spend yourselves on behalf of the poor. And we go, yeah, 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 I'll do some poor stuff. Spend yourselves on behalf of the poor. We said it before. Oh, sorry, number two. So that's one, uh, believing it's choice. Number two, um, the deceptiveness of wealth. We won't, we won't go into this much. I've talked on this a couple of times before. Ronald Sider again. We have become ensnared by unprecedented material luxury. Advertising constantly convinces us that we really need one unnecessary luxury after another. The odds are stacked against the poor. The system is broken. Politicians put constituents and rich constituents first. You know, we think about uh, when governments are kind of negotiating trade agreements, they say, well, I'm going to get the best deal for my people. They don't say, I'm going to raise the price of coffee for the people in the UK by making it fairer for the people who produce the coffee beans. That's politics. The system is broken. We wouldn't expect them to. We might vote them out for that. The system is broken and wealth is deceptive and we're a part of that. I'm not going to dwell on that one very much because we've chatted about it already. But number three... And this was the big one for me. I believed the lie of the middle-class spirit. Middle-classness probably isn't going to radicalise the world. The middle-class might do it. It's going to have to be through the grace of God. But middle-classness itself isn't very naturally radical. What do I mean by the middle-class spirit? The middle-class spirit says, I can earn God's favour. The middle-class spirit says... I can work my way into heaven. It says, sure, I believe in God's grace, but secretly I'm more concerned to act in a way that I think deserves God's grace. And I know this is true because I'm middle class, which is okay, but I have the middle class spirit, and this was really holding me back. It cares about the things of the world, it, sorry, it cares about the things that the world values, and therefore detests the people who don't have anything the world values, even though God tells us that the things of value in this world are detestable to him. And that's how I knew that I hated the poor, that's when I realised it. That's why when I was looking at this 18-year-old, I was thinking, oh, why don't you do it? Because actually, secretly, I value the things of the world, and you've got nothing that the world values, so I get angry about that. That's what it was. I don't hate being middle class. I don't think I can change. I'm extremely middle class. I've got a National Trust lifetime membership. My parents <laughs> bought it for us. And I don't wish I was poor. I thank God I'm not impressed. And more importantly, God doesn't hate me for being middle class. You know, we get the story of Jesus and the rich man. And I, we talked about this before. I, I, I know I'm the rich man in the story. I think most of us probably are. And he goes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, you must obey the Ten Commandments. And he says, I've done that all my life. And he says, one more thing you must do. You must sell all your possessions and give it to the poor. And when he looks at the rich man, we're told that he looked at him and had compassion on him. And the rich man goes away sad because he's had got great wealth. But the point here is the compassion. He has compassion for us and grace I'm middle class, and I, that's how I know how prohibitive a middle, spirit, a middle class spirit can be for us in loving the poor and in having compassion. But we need to become poor in spirit. That's what the Bible talks about. That's what Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mountain. He says, the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? John Wesley says, who then are the poor in spirit? The humble, they who know themselves, who are convinced of sin. 
One of these can no longer say I am rich and increased in goods and have need of nothing, which is something I say, which is something I say in my actions, as now knowing that he is wretched and poor, miserable and blind and naked. He sees the pride in himself and knows his guilt and punishment is deserved. He sees himself utterly helpless with regard to atoning for his past sins, utterly unable to make any amends to God, to pay any ransom for his own soul. If you don't know yet Jesus yet, this is the good news story. This is the gospel. The gospel is that that is true of all of us. But he comes and in our unrighteousness, he makes us righteous by dying for us if we accept him. That is the good news. That's why it's so good news. Because none of us can earn a way into heaven. And it's when I remember that, that I suddenly look on people and have compassion. It's when I remember that it doesn't really matter about the difference in our finances. What matters is I was headed towards hell and deservedly so, but now I'm going to heaven because of Jesus. And you can be the same. And suddenly I look at you and think, with that being the most important thing, it's actually not okay that I own stuff and you don't. It's actually not okay that I have extra and you don't have enough. How do we feel our duty as Christians to love the poor? Because we've talked up until now about why it's important that we have compassion, but compassion is also actually the answer. And this is where we realise that compassion is not just for the poor. You can't just have compassion for one people group and, and not for the others. That's self-righteousness and that's compassion that isn't built on the love of the Father. But it is the answer. Heidi Baker is a, a, a missionary who runs a ministry in, in Mozambique <clears throat> and she says, are the poor, she works with very poor in Mozambique, are the poor only a problem that needs fixing or are they made in the image of God? I decided a while ago that I was going to find the image of God in every man, woman and child. When we have, ma- when we have the mind of Christ and really begin to understand that the suffering broken people who we are looking at are our brothers and sisters created in the image of our Father, not stopping is no longer an option. That's what we need to do to have compassion. We need to remember that we are all made in the image of God. But our story is the same for all of us. It's got one ending or the other. That's what it is. It's not about me being richer or you poorer. So how do we practically do that? Because I could leave it as that, but I really want to do some application parts. And I guess uh, I could have made this whole thing about application because we spent four months really pressing into this. Um, But actually, I feel like that is the stuff that is moving me forward. Some of the stuff I say next is a little bit practical. Some of it's more um, abstract, I suppose. Um, But if you don't get that first stuff, this next stuff is is irrelevant. You're not going to be able to. You'll either just do it for guilt for a little while, or you won't be able to do it at all. The motivation won't be there. That's why that's the stuff that's important. But just five really quick ways um, that we can go about doing this. Number one, stop for the one. This is a kind of like, what would Jesus do moment, and I think about this a lot. He made every moment count. That's how Jesus did it. Poverty is all around you. Where should you start? Who is your neighbour? Your neighbour is the person you walk past today who needs help. If you walk past a homeless person, that's your neighbour. If at work there's someone who's socially awkward, who's struggling financially, that's your one. Start there. The Lord is not asking for everyone to do huge things, but he is asking that we all do something. And if you're anything like me, and if you recognise that thing about the middle class spirit, then previously, and I still do this now, you'll walk past people sometimes and go, I know that you need help, but I can't save you. Oh my goodness, there's so much that needs doing. And at those moments, I try and think, what would Jesus do? He'd stop for the one. He's the one that can save me. It's not us. Don't worry. He's not asking you to get that person off the street, get them a house, get them educated, turn them middle class. That's not what he's asking you to do. But he's asking you to stop for the one and believe that through you, he can save them. Number two, expect a cost. We can't only love the poor if it costs us nothing. That's kind of how we got to this stage of inequitable distribution in the first place. We weren't the ones who created the system, but the system's broken, and that's why it's, uh, that's why it's broken. I often ask myself, what am I waiting for? Am I waiting for perfect wealth? Am I waiting until I have enough money that I can buy everything I want and that I can cut, break, fix anything that gets broken? Am I, am I waiting until I've got enough time that I can do everything I want before I give out of that access? We can't do that. 
We need to consider what we can get a buy with financially whilst our brothers and sisters are starving. We need to consider whether we can give up that weekend to sign up for the Great British Spring Clean or one of those other things because there's a chance to, to love and serve people and have compassion. Jesus told the rich man to sell everything he had and give to the poor. I'm not telling you to go home and do that, but Jesus literally said those words. Ronald Sider again. It's not because food, clothes and property are inherently evil that Christians today must lower their standards of living. It's because others are starving. Number three, are you bad at it? Me too. I am also bad at compassion. This is what I was talking about at the beginning, and this is why I feel like this message is for us as a church, because I don't feel like I have this special skill set. I don't feel like I'm particularly compassionate a lot of the time. Let's commit to making this a spiritual discipline that we all engage in, though. I often think, sometimes, you know, certainly when I've realised this, I think after a day at work, I'm like, what came out of my mouth or my heart today? You know, that was so uncompassionate. But actually, those are the moments when I'm not walking with Jesus. But if you were, and that's what stirs me to do it, if you are walking with Jesus, then you suddenly find the ability to be compassionate out of that, because he is ultimately compassionate. And we find... um, you know, that this isn't done in isolation. We find that this is where it's the case that you can't just be compassionate for the poor and not be compassionate for other people as well. You suddenly realise, ah, you know, my boss who yelled at me, I don't know what that person's carrying, what's going on in their life. You find out, ah, I've got to love my city as a whole. It's a byproduct of relationship with him. Number four, know what's going on. This is massively my journey for the last four to six months. And I would love to have just talked about this. If you're interested in it, please come and chat to me about it. But I spent a long time trying to work out what was going on in Cheltenham to know that what we can do about it as a church and that stuff is still ongoing. And we need to speak to people who know what's going on. People like Sarah knows what's going on. People um, who've got charities um, in the city. People who are already working in the poor. Buy the local paper. That's how I found out that there are um, a couple of bars which have recently signed up to become lap clubs during race week when we know that human trafficking is going on in Cheltenham. Read about what we can do to protest against that. That's what I'm doing. Again, ask me about it. Even knowing that human trafficking is an issue here, knowing that most wards in Cheltenham have something like 600 single pensioner households, so there's going to be loneliness. Knowing that West Cheltenham is poorer. Why is West Cheltenham poorer? We must understand the economic and social history and present of our town. We must make the economic and social problems the religious problems. The church must recognise that social conditions affect the spiritual side of life and that spiritual conditions affect the social side of life. We've got to lift our eyes up and know what's going on. Spend time in Coronation Square if you live in Hester's Way. Work out where you can spend time if it's more local to you. And number five, get involved. Again, I'd love to spend more time talking about what we're doing about this church, where we're going with this. We've made it one of our vision goals that by 2020 we want to have 20% of a church in a social action problem. And we've always recognised that that's a little bit clunky because it's not about 20%. We don't even know how many people we'll have. Hopefully 200 because that's another one of our vision goals um, by 2020. So I guess you could work that out. Um, But it's not about that. It's just about us as a church owning that we need to love the poor. As a church, it's not okay for us to not be doing it. It's not that we need to own something in there like, yes, we've got a social action project. We can tick it off. It's because we're the church called to do that. And there's power in us doing something together and in the resources behind that but the more I read into that that won't be enough if 40 of us are doing that and we have our own social action project great but if the other 80% of us aren't doing anything about loving the poor then you're going to have to have that conversation with Jesus sign up for those things those things the big spring clean you might have seen that and thought like it's nice that they're doing that you might not thought anything about that's what this is about the coffee morning raising money and awareness for hope for justice you might have thought again that's a lovely little thing I'm not going to go to that that's what that's about 
during race week, we're going to be doing stuff off the back about, about of this as well. My heart, really, for this year is that we're going to end up doing quite a lot of stuff that people can come and get involved in, get involved in it in small groups as well. Now, it would be great if we could go, all go to all of those things, but, I mean, diaries mean it's not going to happen. I'm missing the big spring clean one because I'm on... Um, on holiday we're not going to be able to do that but my heart is that we will put on enough stuff this year as a church that everyone has the opportunity to go to at least one of them so those are just some practical things um, I wanted to leave with you um, but we, we want to uh, as I said the key here is, is where we get the motivation to do this if the, we'll come into land and I've mentioned it before but the main reason that we can be compassionate for this and the main way that we need to draw on for compassion is by remembering Jesus. We need to do this because I can't save anyone on my own. Because when I see that poor person at work, when I see that homeless person, I can't save them. I can't save them in terms of the physical. I can't get them to be middle class. I can't save them ultimately either. And we need to remember it because I'm bad at it as well. And we need to remember him because we can't be motivated by guilt. But read about Jesus whilst thinking about the poor, and you will be blown away. Here was a man who was born poor, okay? His family were poor. At his circumcision, at the temple, they gave, gave two doves as the sacrificial offering, which is the cheapest offering you could get away with giving. He, um, for a while, was a refugee in Egypt. He was born in one of the poorest towns in Israel. Apparently, uh, itinerant rabbis wouldn't have had an ongoing flow of money, so he wouldn't have had that. At one point, he says, the son of man doesn't have anywhere to lay his house, his head, so he didn't have a house. His last possessions were his garments that were ripped by the Roman guards. He had nothing. He was poor. And the first preach he gave, which is like the shortest preach in history, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. We need to consider him who came that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And we need to consider what that means for our lives as well. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.